Hello, and welcome to Living in the Square Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjaris, and I am so glad to have you here. My guest this month is Deshaun Harrison, and I can't wait to introduce you to them. First, though, I want to encourage you all to sign up for my email newsletter if you haven't already. It's especially important right now, as that will be probably the main way that you can learn about what I'm up to and how you can engage with my work. So to sign up for the newsletter, you can DM me on Instagram at livinginthisqueerbody or go to livinginthisqueerbody.com to sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is also the best way to get on the wait list for many things, but most importantly, my 12-week Always Coming Home group and the 2022 iteration of the three-month-long Embodied Testimony Intensive, both of which are really beloved projects that I'm looking forward to re-engaging with. So the big announcement is I will be taking a break, a break from work, a break from the podcast, although we have one more really rad episode that will be released in October. I'm not sure where I'll be with Instagram, so we'll see. All the more reason to get yourself connected via my newsletter. So when this episode releases, I will be recovering from a pretty major surgery related to ongoing autoimmune chronic illness stuff. In my healing, I will have to focus on my body, my rest, and I will have to trust that other folks can support me, support my patients, help with meals and appointments and all the things this Virgo prefers to be in control of. So wish me luck with surrendering to what my body needs. Okay, so on to the show. I was honored to talk with Deshaun Harrison in this episode. We talked about the long-term impacts of childhood illness and the confrontation with the fragility of the body, anti-fatness as a barrier for receiving medical care, how liberal folks' disdain for the South constitutes anti-Blackness, the significance of mutual aid work in Deshaun's life, the limitations of academia as an institution, and of course, their brilliant new book, Belly of the Beast. Deshaun Harrison is a Black trans writer and community organizer in Atlanta, Georgia. Harrison currently serves as the managing editor of Wear Your Voice magazine and is the author of Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness a public speaker who often leads workshops on Blackness, queerness, gender, fatness, disabilities, and their intersections. Harrison's works can be found at DeshaunHarrison.com. Thank you for listening and keep taking care of yourself and others. Deshaun, welcome 
to living in this queer body. And thank you for taking the time to be here. I, I think I was just telling you beforehand that I had already pre-ordered your book when I thought about interviewing you. I'm so excited to read it and excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, and I'm very excited to be here and, and, and grateful. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Cool. As you may know, I tend to start the conversations with a, a pretty open-ended question and really, you know, you can kind of go wherever this takes you, but maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about some of your earliest memories of being in a body or learning about what it meant to have a body. Mm. Um, yes. So I do know that this is um, typically your opening question and I have been sitting with it for some time. And I think that I, I don't know my earliest memory of, of knowing like, Hey, this flesh bag is my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a moment where I was hyper aware of how perhaps fragile this, this body is um, and just how much, or rather how, how people um, can respond to your body, I'll say. Mm. And that was for me in elementary school. Um, I don't remember the exact grade. I think I was in maybe third or fourth grade. Um, and I had gotten severely ill, um, in a matter of weeks, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I was, I was always like a, a a fat kid. So that was, that wasn't abnormal for me, but losing so much weight in such a short amount of time was abnormal for me. And I, I, um, I was just really, really sick and I, I had to be flown um, from the hospital in my hometown to Chapel Hill um, mm. because I was just that ill. Um, but in the time leading up to that, you know, so much about how people responded to my body was like a celebration. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there was not room for the possibility that I was ill, even, even though I am at this point, like this, this child, I was what, like six, seven years old. Wow. And I remember just feeling like so awful in my body because I was, I was so sick. And, and yet like the only person who was, or I guess the only people really who were really, really concerned were like my mom and my Nana, um, but my mom was always really on top of on top of that for me. Uh, And and she knew that there was something not right about what was happening with my body. And of course, that that should be everyone's like understanding that if you are dropping, you know, double digits of weight in in a matter of a week or two weeks, Mm -hmm. (laughs) something's not right. Yeah. Um, So it, it was a really difficult time for me. And I think that is that is when I started to like notice that I like, you know, that I'm, I'm living in a body and that bodies are not just, I wouldn't have used this term at the time, but 
that bodies are not these apolitical things, um, but that, you know, people have their own relationships to their to bodies and to other people's bodies. And when 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 we inhabit them, we don't inhabit them for our, ourselves or only for ourselves, but that because they are so political, everyone else also seems to inhabit our bodies. Mm. Um, and so that is that that was the moment for me that I came to that conclusion, even if not with that same language. Mm, yeah, I mean, I would love to hear. It, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, and it's a very kind of I guess what I'm hearing is. In a really reductive way, you know. Anti-fatness. Mm-hmm. prevented you essentially from receiving medical care or being tended to in the way that you should have or needed to, despite, you know, your mother's attunement and all of that. But it, it, it sounds like it connected to, to sort of larger if there are even like larger concepts around this idea that you're that other people seem to inhabit your body too or have have a a really significant impact on your body i wonder if you could just say say more about that um as that those thoughts have kind of evolved for you yeah for sure um yeah so in 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 that moment, anti-fatness absolutely was playing a, a significant role. You know, I, I was so sick that I was, you know, not able to go to school and I wasn't mm. able to do homework and, and all these things. And, and again, I was six or seven years old. I'm in elementary school, third, fourth, maybe yeah. fifth grade. Like I, I was a child um, and I, I wasn't able to do anything that is typically understood to be childlike and yet there was this celebration around around my body like oh wow like um you look you look good or you or you or like something um something celebratory around the fact mm-hmm. that i lost so much weight yeah um from adults right like this is not yeah, even yeah. From my classmates or anything like that this is from adults um and I I think I want to backtrack a little bit because I actually like just thought of other memories that, that sort mm-hmm. of made me aware of of my body also having to do with elementary school. But um, sort of like what what played a role in in what I was just speaking about, like in elementary school. I don't know if this was true where you went to school or if you remember this, but we used to do like uh, physical fitness tests. Oh, yeah. In gym. And I remember like being the the fat kid who like could not do pull ups, who was was not like interested in in trying to like climb rope or anything like like I was not invested in (laughs) in any of that. Mm -hmm. And every every year for like a one mile run or for like the pull up. um, I don't know. Was it every I think it was more than just a year. I don't remember. But whenever, however often we did them for the one mile run and for the pull-ups and everything else, I made like a very loud attempt to 
show everyone that I was going to like to fail this test and I was going to do it on purpose. Right. I, I made sure that like people knew that it, I, it wasn't because I was fat that I couldn't do this or that I or that I wasn't going to like show up like this, but that because it was because I just didn't care. But in my heart, I absolutely cared. And I wished I could have done the pull-ups and I wish I could have done the mile run in a faster time and all of that. But having that sort of like, um, I guess, cushion allowed for, for me to sort of, I guess, um, avoid some of the, the pushback and the, and the fat phobic jokes that would have come if I actually actively tried to, to do the pull-ups or to do the one mile run in a faster time, especially as someone with asthma and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but that, but I'm, I mentioned that because that also of course completely changed as I got sick. Um, and so there was, there was no way that I was doing any of those things because my body quite literally could not handle it. And so as I got older, the, some the illness that I, that I had wasn't something that just went away. I had, to have procedures done three or four different times in my life. I was flown to Duke hospital and Chapel Hill hospital um, to have these procedures done because it was just that significant. Um, And so, you know, I sort of learned what it meant to be not only somebody who was living in a fat body that was changing, but also somebody who was living in a disabled body that was not changing. Um, And, and, and the ways that people respond to both of those things simultaneously. Mm. Um, and so it was like this, this complete intersection of, of ableist and anti-fat um, sort of like regards for my body um, and something that I didn't have language to, to name or didn't have an understanding of fully for myself that of course only forced me to internalize the things that I was, that I was hearing and, and, and the ways that other people felt about my body, even though I'm in the process of trying to heal. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and that has been true for, for most of my life. I, I have lived in, in, in life as disabled since I was a child um, in different ways or different disabilities or different chronic illnesses. And um, I have had to learn over time what it means to to not internalize other people's feelings because everyone has a thought and a feeling about your body um, and everyone has an understanding of what your body is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to move and how it's supposed to react. Um, And if you don't adhere to that or if your body doesn't adhere to that, um, then then of course there's something abnormal or, or, or wrong about your body and the way that it functions or does not function. Um, and so that, that has like been true for my entire life. But in that, in, in that moment, um, is, is the first moment I can recall, like that being something that stuck with me, obviously it's still a memory that I think through. Um, sure. so yes, I, I, I hope that that answers the question, but yeah. 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 I mean, it really, it, it just, it sets the scene, I think, as you said, for, you know, kind of what you've continued to experience, it sounds like for, for your whole life. I mean, to be introduced to um, severe and chronic illness at an early age in and of itself is, is kind of an introduction to 
assumption, like, you know, ableist assumptions and intrusion of like a medical system, right? You're kind of, your body is so, as you started out this conversation, you know, like this is an encounter with your body's fragility, right? And, and to have that, to have your experience of fragility be also kind of muddled by, by all these um, other currents, it sounds like that you are also feeling, you know, it's really painful. It's really painful to think about that kind of elementary school version of you, you know, I wonder what, it sounds like not a lot in some ways has changed, but your maybe your lens or your ability to attempt to not internalize. I don't know how much we can actually choose. It seems pretty hard, um, but your at least your attempts to not internalize some of these narratives, um, you know, has evolved over time, and I certainly I think culminated in this book that you we will talk about that is that is out and now and also in some of the writing you have been doing and organizing up until now. So I guess maybe we could sort of skip ahead a little bit and just if you could talk a little bit about what what it's been like, I guess, to try to not internalize some of these messages or frameworks or have have these frameworks not, you know, take over the way you experience your body and what have you, you know, what people or writing or sort of philosophies have have helped you to to do that along the way? Yeah, I think this is a really great question. And I heard you sort of saying, like, you know, not not sure what or really that much has changed, but, but that my lens has, and that's absolutely true. Right. Um, I, I'm only able to name my experience with this language now because of how much my relationship to my body. And also because of the knowledge I've gained around bodies, um, has, has changed. And so I, I want to say that for me, really, I was, I was living with these internalized feelings around my disabilities and around my fatness up really until 2018, give or take. Mm. Um, I started publishing my writing in 2017 and and really most of that like writing was really hyper-focused on the organizing work that I was doing, specifically in Atlanta, um, where I'm still living. And I was like, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of like, work at all really on bodies or fatness or disabilities and ableism because I didn't I wasn't aware that this was anything to actually write about nor was I aware that this was like an actual um marginalized experience mm-hmm. and in 2018 I discovered fat studies I discovered online first you know folks like Hunter Shackelford and Caleb Luna and Aubrey Gordon who was then known as just your fat friend and even Bay and um, Tommy and Boots and and a, a few other like online personas um, and, mm-hmm. and people people who have like done amazing work in in the fast studies field that folks may not even like know of or be aware of really and once I discovered their work and then discovered actual like 
articles and, and, and books um, that I could read that would help me with what I was experiencing, I, I learned that, you know, this experience wasn't mine alone, nor was it something that happened in a vacuum. Right. Um, and when and when I discovered that, when that was the lesson learned, I was like, oh, this is something that I have to take seriously. Like this is something that I that actually makes me feel so much um, more happy and affirmed in this body because I know that this is not my issue alone. This is not something that I did to myself, mm. um, and nor is it something that I can handle on my own. Um, and so if all these people are writing about their experiences or, or writing about like the, the cultural phenomenon uh, that is anti-fatness or writing like this theory, um, whether it be autoethnography or, or not, it's so important. And, and so it was in that moment that when I discovered all of this, especially because at the time I was navigating homelessness, I was forced into survival sex work. I couldn't find resources. I couldn't find employment. I could not find housing. Mm. Um, I was navigating all of these, these structural barriers um, that for me, I was only able to explain through anti-Blackness, which, is, which of course is, is a very important explanation, but couldn't also more accurately name the way that anti-Fatness was playing a significant role in, in, in how I was living in this experience, right? I was a person who was in college. I was someone who, who like was, who had moved away from, from, from home and yet was still experiencing all of these like structural barriers while also navigating, you know, being queer and trans. And so when I discovered fat studies, it, it was so important for me and it, and it shifted my, my worldview entirely. Mm -hmm. um, but then it also sort of made clear for me that while while I was able to get to get understanding of 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 my experience through this this sort of academic discipline, so much about it still was not about me. Um, so much about what what I discovered in fact studies and what is still true really is is that it's about fat cis women, white women. And I don't have that experience. And so outside of, you know, like just a few folks that have written on like a black experience and, and really most of those aside from Kiese Lehman are about a black woman's experience. There was nothing in, in, in fat studies that, that named my experience. Um, and I'd also discovered black studies, which is also, which has also been very affirming for me. Um, but but it, even in that discipline as well, it's not really, there's no real focus on, on, on fat folks or um, on a conversation around, you know, like gendered experience outside of a few folks like, you know, Spillers and um, Zachia Mon Jackson and a couple other folks. Um, and so, it was very, very, very important for me to, to write this book because there, there were all these, all of these disciplines that were doing, you know, significant work that, that helped me to like name my experience and name who I am, but that 
weren't blended, that were all very yes. simple. And I was living in this very blended experience. Right. And, and I was like, you know, I, there, there has to be something that allows me to like not feel like I'm moving through disciplines because my body, my identities cannot move through disciplines. My body exists as one. Right. Um, right. And, right. And I need something to also exist as one. So that's what led, led to me writing this. But that also is what shifted my, my lens. What changed for me was, was being able to find these works that gave me um, uh, the language I needed to be able to name my experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I feel like you summarized it really well. The I guess I'm still there's still a part of me that's thinking about, you know, this younger version of you being, you know, at such an early age, kind of being medicalized. And my my association, you know, one association I have with that is personally is the idea of, you know, encountering a bunch of specialists who mm. only deal with one, you know, one part of the body, like one organ system or one. Right. And so, you know, often I think that it feels a little bit like that, like you were getting affirmed in with a lot of these theories, you know, theoretical orientations, but that it was it was kind of like a siloed experience. You know, it was affirming parts of you and you're I, I think that's what's so powerful about your book is that you're, you know, you're attempting to kind of integrate all of these different parts. As you said, your body is a whole, it's, it's actually experienced as a whole. And many people, I think, and you can tell me what you think about this, but, you know, based on who I work with and my own experience, it's hard to encounter. It's hard. It's overwhelming to encounter your one's body as a whole, like with all of its kind of complexity and, there's often not a lot of support for the different parts of experience that you're naming. Um, So I guess, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you, the process of, of writing belly of the beast and what, what kind of came together for you, I guess, um, or what you were pulling together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was pulling together really like all of these disciplines um, through women, gender and sexuality studies, black studies and fat studies. Um, and then, of course, like sort of subgroups like trans studies and queer studies, um, all of those things were were really important to me um, and also were what I was thinking through in writing this, this text, but I, I knew that there was something, there was something that I had to do to, to, to really bridge this gap, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so in, in, in the writing process, I was, it's funny to think about now uh, um, where like I would sit on my, in, on my couch in the living room and, and just have, a bunch of different books open to like different pages that I was like trying to to read and cite um, from folks like Sabrina Strings and then folks yep. like Horton Spillers and then folks like George Jackson and Michelle Foucault and and then there's books from like 
Judith Butler, all these people are just like sitting on on my my table as I'm like writing this book. Mm. And it was so important for me to be able to to do that because what I realized early on when like even before writing this book, as I first discovered these scholars is that so many of them are thinking through the same thing. Um, and they're thinking through the same thing without necessarily naming um, what the other person is thinking through or, or rather like naming the specific identity that you're thinking. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, this like this all makes so much sense when you are thinking. I mean, it makes sense individually, but it makes so much more sense when you are like really thinking through these things together, when when you are working through the ways that anti-fatness directly impacts um, trans folks and the, and, and the surgeries that they can or cannot have. Yes. But then also when you think about the way that that is hyper, like um, that is, that's, that's more true when you are a black trans person who then doesn't even have access to insurance to be able to get a consultation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, this, like all these things are happening together. Or when you are, a, a black fat person being murdered by police, right? Like that's that's a significant point and something that's very like important to think through, um, but you don't think through it as, you know, it's, it's often thought of only as like um, a black person being murdered by police and not as a black fat person being murdered by police or this black fat person experiencing anti-fat, anti-black violence. And so it was it was so important for me to be able to to talk about all of these things as as one big experience because they are. Um, and, and so it was exciting for me to write one of the chapters in the book. Which is on the war on drugs and the war on obesity, because mm. it is a chapter where I am connecting the overlap of the uh, of these two wars, um, quote unquote, they really yeah. are genocides. Um, and, and it was important to me to do that because this, this is connecting these identities and, and helping us see that they are oftentimes engaged as one. Um, and, and so, you know, being able to lean on the, the, the scholars that I, that I did and, and connecting these disciplines in a way that I was able to was was really significant to me and very important for me to do with this book um, because yeah. it was it was missing from 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 the disciplines and it's a necessary thing to do. Uh, yeah, a hundred. I mean, I a hundred percent. I am, and I I guess I am speaking when I say that I'm also speaking as someone who has been in and out of um academia and 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 so i I wonder if like i can i can really picture also myself um with the spread of books right and trying to integrate you know in my own ways a lot of the theoretical learnings that i've that i've encountered alongside you know my work as a clinician and and my political orientation and all of these things. But I guess I'm curious what it felt like um, as a writer, as a thinker to, 
you know, were you doing this outside of an institutional setting? Like you weren't affiliated with an institution while you were writing. Right. You didn't have that support. You weren't in academia. Yep. Yeah. Um, everyone, everyone often thinks that I'm an academic. I don't have a degree. I did go to school for, for three years, um, in undergrad, but I don't have a degree. I am not a part of any institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the writing of this book, I was literally at, at home working my two jobs, trying to stay afloat in the mm-hmm. midst of COVID and also organizing, um, so that was that was the conditions I wrote this book under. I, I did not have any help of any institution and the publishing house that I'm with, they have been so great um, and they're also independent. So, you know, I also am not publishing through like some major um, publication or um, an academic publication. Mm-hmm. It, it was me and and, you know, well, it was me writing this and, and with the help of um the, the publishing house who like helped give me like, you know, like time frames and, and, and schedules and things like that. But mm-hmm. I was not part of any academic institutions that yeah. really, really helped me write this text. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate, I think it's just important to clarify that both for the sake of, you know, saying, wow, this is possible um, to do it. And also to to talk about how challenging those conditions are for writers, you know, and for folks outside of institutional contexts, mm-hmm. um, it see it almost seems, and I don't know what you think of this, but it almost seems like, you know, kind of like, of course, yeah, this book um, happened and was constructed out outside of um, an institutional context. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, but. But that feels like something maybe significant, which is not to say, you know, it's not to say there there is no institutional space for you or for your thinking. I mean, it's extraordinarily relevant, I think. But um, maybe the fact that it had to be kind of generated or that it ended up being generated outside of an institution says a lot about, you know, kind of going back to these like structural barriers that you you were talking about before. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, <laughs> I think that you are absolutely correct. There, this academics had a lot of time to produce this work, and they didn't. Mm. Um, and the closest we get to to that from academics, and I'm forever grateful for them, is Sabrina Strings and Kiese Lehman. Um, and, and both of them, you know, they both co-signed my book, and I'm just so grateful for that, Kiese. Um, wrote a forward and a blurb and um, Sabrina wrote a wrote a blurb um, for the book. And I, I think that in terms of like the Academy, they are the closest we get to to this this text being being written. But like I like I mentioned, neither of them are writing about transness or queerness in their texts. And so the Academy had a significant amount of time to to produce this and and it didn't mm-hmm. uh, and and so yeah I think that you are absolutely correct that that I, I think it really it it speaks to sort of the limitations of of academia yeah. um, and and what it can and cannot produce and also um, the the sort of like really intense I, I guess structures in place to to not 
allow much room for overlap in disciplines. Yeah. Uh, which I think is so weird, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's like you choose one discipline and that has to be it and there's no overlap, but that's not how the world works. We know that so many people live in, in, in the overlap. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, if, if someone were to ask me, I would, I would tell them that this work could only be produced by an organizer. And that's because it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Your like the, the fact that maybe you can talk a little bit about just what the, or, what organizing you were doing while you were writing this and mm-hmm. living through a pandemic, as it sounds like you were. Right. Yes. So I wrote this entire book in 2020. I signed um, my contract um, like two or three days before quarantine was announced. Um, (laughs) So I was not anticipating writing a book in the pandemic, but that is exactly what happened. And so I was doing a lot of mutual aid work here in Atlanta um, with like um, a mutual aid group that myself and some of my fellow like organizing friends and peers had had started. Um, and that was like the first half of the year for me while writing this book. I was doing mm. a lot of mutual aid with trying to like raise funds for for folks who who, you know, were at risk of losing housing and who needed food and who needed transportation, who needed, um, you know, masks and all these things that were happening um, at one time. Um, and also trying to like connect mutual aid to a larger sort of politic. Yep. And then the uprisings came because of the murder of um, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and so many people who were murdered in this time frame. Um, and so then I was doing a lot of organizing work around, around that uprisings that lasted for so long. And in my experience of organizing, I've been organizing in Atlanta since 2014. And the, the summer 2020 uprisings were the longest uprisings I'd experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, closest to that was in 2016, um, after Alton Sterling and Philander Castile were murdered. And there was organizing that happened um, for an entire week for seven days. But the uprisings lasted here in Atlanta for months. Um, People were out in the streets for so long. Um, and, 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 and I was organizing around that um, while also writing this book and working two jobs. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a lot happening because I'm, I'm writing about, there's a chapter in the book around police violence, one in which George Floyd's name is, is mentioned. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing this chapter in the midst of this uprising and I'm writing about, you know, health and and mm-hmm. like um, and desirability and, and all these things while also doing work around mutual aid and, and noticing who who does and does not get the resources and, and who who has to struggle to get resources and 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 writing about like you know these these uprisings and, and this police violence all these things that are happening at one time while I'm writing this book, right? Um, and it just felt so timely. Um, <laughs> felt like it felt like this this has to be written now if it's going to ever be written. Um, yeah. There's no there's there, there will never there will never be a more perfect time to write this book. 
um, as hard as it was, I, I was telling someone the other day um, that I took like a month and a half, two months off from writing this book. I didn't write anything um, because I got so overwhelmed and I was like, mm. it stressed me out because I had like, I pushed that, that pushed my like um, my due date back by two months. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to not be able to publish the book. I was just, I was overwhelmed. Um, but I needed those two months to really sit with what was happening in the world around me and to, and to sit with how that would influence the work that I was writing. Right. Um, and, and, and how important that work was and is. Um, and, and, and so the last chapter is on abolition. And I'm grateful that, that it is, and I wouldn't have written that chapter if not for this past summer, well, 2020 summer, writing on, on, on abolition, sort of the limitations of abolition, or rather abolition as a start goal and not an end goal. Mm -hmm. um, and I would not have had that chapter if not for what I was experiencing in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like you, you identified all of the, so many of the horrible, but also very real, you know, discourses that would be happening during the pandemic in just pulling together a proposal for this book, you know, and then it, it you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking about how stimulating it must've been to be trying to kind of be in your writerly space and also just you know the the unbelievable amounts of kind of anti-fat um discourses uh, connecting covid susceptibility like just it, it it goes on and on and on that you were sort of you're writing into all of these topics kind of preparing for the interview, I came across this article that you wrote that is called Your Disdain for the South is Just Anti-Blackness. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. It feels like a real, um, to me at least, it feels kind of like a preview of not only your, you know, your really beautiful writing style, but also the kind of the way that you're able to integrate and call out um, so many intersecting kind of um, forces. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that. And, and yes, I, I, that, that article was written because I was feeling so frustrated with the way that things were going with, you know, like there was so much happening with the election and with like the, the sort of like storms that were happening that were related to climate change and mm -hmm. so much that was, that was happening at the time. Um, and I was just so frustrated with the way that people were just so ready to discard of the South. And the South has the highest like black population in the nation. And so to me, it just does not feel disconnected. Yeah. Uh, 
it, yeah. it, it was it was so easy for partic particularly white liberals to 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 name like oh well you know this is why we hate the south but also other liberals too uh, this is why we hate the south and and the south is useless and this that and the third but so much about organizing so much about freedom fighting so much about um developing a, a revolutionary politic in general comes from people who came from the south mm -hmm. right like it comes from this this relationship that that the south has particularly the black south has to to slavery right um like yeah. it did like the interconnectedness of that is is not lost on me um and and neither is people's disdain for or embarrassment um of slavery right so because people feel so embarrassed by slavery um, they're disinterested in in having sort of any connections to slavery and therefore are disinterested in the South. But the South produces so much from culture to to politics to organizing efforts like the South produces um, so much about the way that the U.S. and and other places um, are able to 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 move. And so. It was very frustrating for me to um, to be living in that moment where, you know, the South was being blamed for, for, for elections going awry, even though we live in America and America is going to be America and, and whiteness is going to be whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and no one wanted to, to sit with that. Instead, it was the South's fault. But Black folks, showed out in overwhelming numbers for for these past elections. Um, and so if if folks were not willing to, to acknowledge the fact that what they really wanted to name was that black people didn't save them uh, and, until black people saved them. Right. It was like black people didn't didn't save us. So now we hate the South. But then when when Black folks showed out in droves and 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 won these elections for really for themselves, not for other people, but because that did save them. Then it was oh, we're thankful for the black people who saved us and this type of thing, right? This rhetoric and it it, uh. just, it irked me because I think it 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 continues to dichotomize anti-blackness, where there's this idea that you know the South is, is the only racist place and the North is not. But when you look at like the county makeup of, of how voting is happening in the North, more of them are Republican than a lot of the South is. Uh -huh. um, and so it was like, you know, it, it was just overwhelming at the time to be watching the way that climate change was destroying the South and, and how so many states in the South are going to be impacted first and 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 perhaps like um, more harshly by climate change than the rest of the U.S. To witness that, and then to witness the way that that politicians were so eager to to prioritize um, money and profit over people, and and then to to be navigating you know these uprisings where the South is doing so much. Um, or Southern organizers rather are doing so much heavy lifting and, and so like so much um, cross state solidarity um, attempts and whatnot was just 
it was overwhelming. And it was like, I, I feel a need to remind people that the South is not just comprised of the, the Confederate flag waving redneck white people that it's often associated with, but that uh, uh, the, the largest black population exists in the South. Mm-hmm. In the um, and it's important to, to, to acknowledge that and, and be mindful of that because talking about getting rid of the South means talking about getting rid of the majority of the black people in this, in this country. Um, who are also producing so much to try to, you know, work towards our collective liberation. Um, And if we can't be honest about that and acknowledge that, then there's no way to remove it from anti-Blackness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes, it, I think this goes without saying, but I, I guess in the spirit of sort of the focus of this podcast, you know, I think it's important also to just acknowledge that the like queer trans community narratives, discourses are are deeply complicit in in this kind of uh, rhetoric around the South and what you are you know proposing is basically, you know, very minorly concealed anti-blackness. I wonder if that's something that you experience or if you are partly just connected to community, like regional community where you are and are are not as, I don't know, um, bothered, I guess, by, by how, how, kind of queer discourse is tends to to be very anti or judgmental of of southern discourse. Hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so I am surrounded by black queer and trans folks and most of them are from the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't I don't have to necessarily live through or or navigate the the rhetoric that um, a lot of, a, I guess a lot, I guess like mainstream queer discourse is like around the South. Um, yeah. because I, I just refuse to have to, um, and, <laughs> and, and, and I, and I guess I really just don't have to, because I mean, I live in Atlanta and, and Atlanta is, is home to so many, um, black queer and trans, um, folks. And so, yeah, like 99.99% of my friends are Black, queer, and trans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I guess, no, that's not something that, that I experienced like firsthand. Although, because I know how anti-Blackness functions, um, I would never say that it's something that I don't ever experience. I think sure. that, that it shows up, I'm sure, in, in, in the way that... Um, in, in the way that a lot of people think, in the way that like a lot of um, perhaps like the, the limited resources that we are provided, um, I'm sure it shows up in the way that it's dispersed and things like that, but um, yeah, I don't have to like directly interact with like a queer discourse that is anti-South. Yeah. Well, I think there's in and of itself that's important to, um, to acknowledge and, and to kind of <laughs> I don't know, like 
highlight that there's really robust and like super radical queer trans black organizers community in the south and that is not an an association that that is always made you know and um outside of southern you know life in the south and so i just it, it feels important it's always feels important to kind of like to expand our notions of where radical queer organizing is happening and yes. and with whom and who's doing it. you know it's it's it feels important to me um no, that is that's so true that's really true a, a lot of people will you know say like oh well you know the south there's there's no way that 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 there is community for particularly the black queer and trans folks in the south because everyone you know thinks of the south as the bible belt which it is mm-hmm. um, but also because of how conservative it is they think that we don't exist here and that the only, right. only way to 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 live as our authentic selves is to move to new york yeah. uh, or to la that's um, right <laughs> And no, we are here and thriving and, and living our best radical, weird and trans lives and, and doing so flawlessly, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And always an opportunity. There's always an opportunity for um, more like more support, more, yes. um, you Re- know, resources. resources. Yes, exactly. Money. Money, 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 um, yes. money and support to to all of the organizers. And um, well, I could talk about that for days. Yeah. So I know we could we actually could expand this and <laughs> talk about this this for a while. But I guess for now, um, I want to hear and let let the listeners know how they can find out about your work and how they can, you know, sort of follow you and um read your book and all of that yes so um you can find me on twitter and instagram both at dashaun lh so d-a-s-h-a-u-n-l-h um and you can find my portfolio and and my like written articles um all on my website at dashaunharrison.com and you can buy my book anywhere that books are sold, online and in stores. How's it? How does it feel to say that? So weird. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. It's so cool. It's so it's it. I I'm never. I don't think I'm gonna ever get used to it. It's so. It's like a, it, it's 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 a dream and also a responsibility. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, and it's just very interesting. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, I am. I'm so looking forward to reading it and also possibly maybe we could, you know, host a online reading or something like that, yeah, because I cool. would just love to kind of draw as much attention as we can to your work, because I am so glad that you're doing it and also so intrigued and and want to learn more so thank you so much Deshaun, for joining me and us today and we will hopefully get to hear more from you soon yes thank you so much for having me 